Today I am interviewing Anna Findell of AnnaFindellSpeaks.com. Her story is going to be told over two episodes, part one and part two. Today you will be listening to part one, and on Thursday you will be listening to part two. In part one, Anna speaks about her trauma. She speaks about teaching bravery to women who have had sexual trauma and PTSD. She also talks about how horses saved her life that summer. She's an incredible woman and um, somebody I'm proud to call my friend. In part two, she speaks to us about NLP and how neuro-linguistic programming can really change someone's life. She talks about how her book, Trauma Triumph, is coming out and what it can do for you. She also speaks about some people, some of her mentors that have helped her along the way. You don't want to miss the end of part two. Very, very powerful. Have you ever experienced something so crippling in your life that has made you feel broken? I have. Are you someone who has a giving heart but is struggling to feel good themselves? Are you consistently putting your needs aside to take care of everyone else? If so, you're not alone. Giving starts with giving to yourself so that you are able to give of yourself to other people. Isn't it time you took back control and discovered what makes you tick? Join me in my journey and find out how you can feel better about yourself, live your best life, and share that with others. Thinking of yourself, it doesn't make you selfish. It makes you brave. I'm Nelia, and this is the Giving Starts With You podcast. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Giving Starts With You podcast. I'm Nelia Hutt. And today I have a very special lady who has, I'm honored to have on the show. She's an international speaker and bravery coach. I'd like to welcome Anna Feindel. How are you, Anna? I'm great. Thank you, Nelia. Anna Feindel here. It's nice to be here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm oh. really excited today. This is good. Oh, I'm so glad. I'm so glad that you're here and uh, your story is incredible. You are doing amazing things. So I can't wait to hear to hear what you all the wisdom you have to share with us today. <laughs> Thank you. Wow. <laughs> Do you want to start at the beginning of your journey? Sure. I grew up uh, quite well off, quite comfortable. And I always find that kind of funny because I hear so many stories of people who grew up with such difficulties and no money and poverty and all this kind of stuff. And then they made it. And what's interesting is um, I sort of went from riches to rags and then back to riches. <laughs> so it's a <laughs> bit of a weird story. But one of the reasons I have discovered that this happened to me is because I'm a real highly sensitive empath type person. And so it wasn't that my family situation was horrible or anything, but I think as an empath and highly sensitive child, the environment wasn't very positive for me. And so I was lucky that I did have uh, things like um, I had dogs and I had riding school and ski school. So I actually spent a lot of time in nature and a lot of time with animals. And I started riding when I was 10 years old. 
And then when I was 15, I started teaching writing. Excellent. Yeah. And I was showing and competing and I was working at a school not too far from me here in Montreal. And I really enjoyed that. And being around the horses taught me something really special about nature. So we actually had a horse. Um, his name was Tiga, which in French means like a little boy. And he had been one of those uh, trotting horses. And of course, they're taught to trot and they get punished, unfortunately, if they do anything else because they're trained to be trotting racers and they can't break into another gate, a canter or a gallop. And his career was finished and he came to our camp to be one of the horses. And it was very difficult for him to trust. So he became my horse for the summer and I decided I was going to work with him and help him get over this. So my friend and I, we went out with one of the fastest horses in the barn that she rode, a black horse, <clears throat> which is actually a name I've used for one of my programs, funny <laughs> enough. Uh, he was a beautiful horse, but he was the fastest horse in the barn. We had about 30 horses in the barn. And so Tiga was terrified. He, you know, and trotting fast, I don't know if you've ever ridden a horse, but if you trot really, really fast, you bounce really, really fast, fast <laughs> as well. So it's not that easy. It's, it's not a very comfortable feeling. Uh, so anyway, we went out into a big field and boy, he trotted for a long time, very, very fast, as fast as the other horse was cantering and even galloping. And I kept whispering in his ear, I kept saying, it's okay, it's okay, let go, let go, let go. And he finally took off and broke into a canter and a gallop. And then we galloped the rest of the field. And, and after that day, he was able to do anything. So he was my sort of first inspiration about my own life. And I was, in, I was still in high school at the time. I was 17 years old and I was traveling on spring, spring break. I was traveling on spring break and my mom came as a chaperone and uh, she said you could bring two friends and two of my friends from high school came and I remember we were so excited. We were just so excited. We were going to this tropical place with beaches and we got a little cabin on the beach and I remember packing my bathing suit and we had a little evening gown so we could go out for dinner and all this kind of stuff. So we were really excited and we went on the trip and we got there, it was beautiful. And we went to uh, this uh, little concert, I guess, in a, I can't remember, some sort of club. We went to a concert. My mom wasn't with us at that point. She was kind of polite, she was distant. She stayed at a different hotel. So we went out, the three of us, and we ended up going to an after party. And I was in a room and there were quite a few people, maybe about 12 people. And I leaned out the window um, I don't know, I was, you know, just having a cigarette or something and leaned out the window and then I turned around and no one was there except this guy and he was locking the door and he turned around and he said, you're going to love it. And I was like, oh my God. So I just froze and in seconds I was on the floor uh, he was pinning me down. My clothes were off. I remember hearing the buttons hitting the floor. 
And I remember crying. I remember feeling the tears going down my face. And, and then it was, it was over. And I kept thinking, you know, raped and killed, raped and killed. That's what I'd seen in the newspaper. And I, I was lying there at 17 thinking, wow, so my life's over. And, but he rolled over and I had seconds. So I grabbed my clothes. I climbed out the window. I ran down the street in bare feet. And I made it back to the hotel room. But I remember this. The, I had this three-hour shower uh, hoping, you know, it would get rid of the pain. And it didn't. And I spent three days. I didn't talk to anybody. I didn't talk to my friends. I didn't talk to my mother. They knew something was wrong with me because I loved talking. And I was a very happy, cheerful high school girl. So it was very strange. And then I came back to Montreal. I never really told anybody. And it wasn't in the days where we had that education, uh, you know, tell a parent and tell somebody and, um, you know, make sure you tell an adult of some kind. So I, I didn't do that. And this is something I actually don't have anywhere else, and I'm going to share it with you. Four months later at my graduation, my boyfriend at the time couldn't make it, and he asked a friend to take me to the grad, and I was kind of like, well, geez, I don't even really know this guy. And actually, the graduation night, I never made it because he raped me. And I never made it to my high school graduation. And uh, so for the summer, I, I remember I was, I was with the horses that summer. And so I stayed with the horses a lot. And I actually slept in the barn a few times. Like I didn't, I didn't know how to be around people that much. And it seemed like people around me knew something was wrong. But, you know, nobody really knew what to do. And so I think for me, the horses saved me that summer just by, I don't know, just comforting me and keeping me thinking, you know, there's something to do to be with the horses. So after that, um, I went off to college. So I left home. I went to college. Things got worse. So I got into, you know, bad, I don't know, say bad community, you know, drinking and smoking pot. And, you know, my grades started going down. I had been a pretty good student. Not fantastic, but, you know, a decent student and a good athlete. And my grades went down and stuff. But again, I was doing sports. So the sports I kept going. So that was keeping my body going. And then I left and uh, went to the West Coast. And then I really got into trouble. I got very angry. I built sort of walls around me. Uh, I became a very strong activist. So I used the anger to fight you know, political things that I thought were incorrect, building on Aboriginal land and things like that. Um, but again, sort of got into this community where being angry all the time was like the norm and, you know, lashing out and fighting and not being that happy. And so when I was 24, which is a few years later, I actually lost my job and had a breakup and attempted suicide. And I remember when the girl came to the door, uh, I knew I didn't want to go to the hospital and I made her promise to not take me to the hospital. Otherwise I wouldn't let her in. And so she, she promised and I let her in and she helped me. And I remember, uh, sounds awful, but I'm, I'm going to, I slipped my wrists. I still have the scars. And 
um, I have nerve damage in that hand from the scar. And the pain was so bad, which is probably why I wasn't very successful because I did one arm and I was like, I'm not doing the other one. Um, sorry to joke, I'm into comedy. So anyway, but she said, you know, I'm gonna get you some whiskey. I said, yeah, that would be good, <laughs> get me some whiskey. So, but she held me all night and she got me through the night. And this is sort of strange. I, I, I found a friend who knew of a woman who was a energy healer and I didn't know anything about it. And my friend just said, you know what? You're really messed up. Why don't you come away for this weekend with me? And I don't know if you believe in the universe, but everything sort of fell into place because I, di I, I didn't have the job and I happened to have exactly the amount of money in my bank account to go for this weekend healing thing. And I said, you know what? I'm going. Like, you know, there isn't much else. And so I went and actually they had to carry me. I had, oh yeah, I'd hurt my back. My back wasn't okay. I woke up. I couldn't move very well. So they carried me to the car. They carried me to a ferry. I slept on the ferry and then I went to see this woman who really, you know, I've studied energy medicine since then. So basically she was helping me get rid of the energy that was in my body from all the trauma because of course trauma gets stuck in the body, not just stuck in the mind. So she worked with me for about two hours and I remember it being really intense and it was a soundproof room. So I was really yelling and screaming and she just kept saying to me, keep breathing, keep breathing, keep breathing, keep breathing. And after that, I slept for 36 hours, which was pretty incredible. And when I got up and, you know, I had some food and then we were getting ready to leave, I was standing at the doorway looking down as if I had suitcases and I'd only brought a knapsack, but I felt this sensation of suitcases that weren't there, like a lot of suitcases. And I didn't bring suitcases, I just had my knapsack on me. And she looked at me, she said, it's okay, you can leave them behind now, you can let them go. Oh, wow. And I just went, oh my goodness. So I got on the ferry, and I remember standing on the edge of the ferry and letting the wind blow through my clothes and just blow, th you know, blow my hair. And I was like, wow, something's really different. And I got back to the city and funny enough, people looked at me and they said, did you just lose 15 pounds? Like in two days? I'm like, yeah, right. But the thing is I had, she had helped me release a lot of this trauma and a lot of this energy that was stuck in different places of my body. And after that, everything changed. So I'd been living this sort of, you know, angry um, kind of anarchist life and I literally packed up my stuff, moved back home, um, got accepted into uh, university, and started going back to school. And so it's really interesting. I mean, I, I don't want to give you my whole life story. I'm writing a book. My book is uh, coming out soon. So, but basically, I went, I started school. And that was a little challenging. I actually got accepted in pre-med. My father was a surgeon. And I always wanted to become a neurosurgeon, but because of this sort of detour, that didn't happen. So I got accepted in pre-med. And the first uh, part of the sciences, I did really well. But then I started really doing badly, and I didn't know what was happening. I was getting tutors. I was getting all this help. 
and I just could not do these exams. And I actually ended up with two Fs, two failures. And so the university wrote me a letter saying, you know, if I don't get B plus in everything, I'll get kicked out of the university. And this was the university where my father was a professor <laughs> and, and head of neurosurgery. And I thought, and I kept thinking, you know, it's going to be on the front page of the newspaper. You know, Anna Findell gets kicked out of university. And I thought, boy, this is humiliating. So I found out a year later that I had um, dyslexia. Hmm. And I didn't know that. I always had told people uh, throughout school when I was younger, and especially in high school, and then in, I took, we have college here, we have college and university, so I took college, and I studied nursing, and I was having some troubles, but nursing was very practical, so I actually did quite well. And so I did go to someone saying, you know, I'm not really reading very well. I mean, I can write well, I can speak well, but I wasn't reading very well. And they tested me, but they were, the test was, it wasn't very difficult. But then finally at university, I did get tested and they said, oh yeah, you have, uh, you have dyslexia and you're very typical. You're like really strong in some areas and then extremely weak. So my math abilities are really, really high, but my reading abilities are really, really low. So interestingly enough, so I had that summer, I said, okay, I've flunked everything. I found out I'm dyslexic. I have to take some courses that I can really pass like with good marks or else I'm getting kicked out of university. So I went into psychology and I started studying um, different psychology courses. And then I started studying neuropsychology, which I got very fascinated about the brain and how it works. And of course that's what my father did. And my father and I used to have wonderful conversations about it. And then I was helping him once with a, a friend of mine, his brother, had a brain tumor and I was helping him with the situation because the friend came from another country and we helped him through that situation together. So my dad and I actually got very close at this time. And then uh, I'll, I'll sort of fast forward in my life. So a few other things happened in my life. I had, um, I had a challenging relationship. I moved away from home again and it was sort of difficult uh, in, in ways that are, I was very isolated. I was, I gave up everything for love. And I think I really, I did feel a lot of loneliness, like we were talking about that before. And I think the, the love that I wanted in my family wasn't the type of love that I was getting. And the more I wanted it from the family, the more they estranged me. So I finally let go and said, wow, I'm not going to get what I need from these people. So I met this fellow and I ran off with him. I gave up everything and I actually didn't even finish university. I had one course left. Oh. Anyway, yeah, it was really bad, but I did come back and finish it. They sent me a letter saying you have, you know, one more semester or you have to do the whole thing over. And I thought, what am I, uh, it was challenging. But unfortunately after that relationship, I had a terrible breakdown and, you know, I've had all these traumas, but in fact, and I'm, I'm really telling you the truth here. I had a, a psychotic breakdown. And so when people talk to me about, oh, I've lost this and I've lost that, I've lost the house or I've lost this. And I go, wow, you know what? I lost my mind. And I lost my mind for three months. And I had a brother, my brother who uh, had schizophrenia. A year after I attempted suicide, he committed suicide. 
And I stood on his grave and I vowed that I would choose a brave life, that I would never choose to take my life. Because when he took his life, I saw how it affected the family and how much it shattered the family. And he, I was very close to him, actually. He's the one who taught me how to ride a bike. He's the one who taught me how to play piano. Um, he started teaching me how to speak Chinese. Um, I used to go to his house with my partner and we'd have dinner and he was married to a Chinese girl. So he was, he got very good at Chinese, actually he wrote Chinese poetry. And the week before he died, he wrote me a poem in Chinese and then translated it into English. And it was about giving. And so I vowed on his grave that I would never choose to take my life, no matter what. And then this was in 1995 that I had this breakdown. And basically what I lived, so psychosis is a loss of reality, hallucinating. I had visual and auditory hallucinations. So in fact, it's as weird as I'm just showing you an orange glass of water here. It would be as weird as if you saw this but I would be saying, well, it's actually not there. And you'd say, well, but it is there. And I'd say, well, it's, it's not there. And so I would try to explain to people, you know, you'd be seeing things that aren't there. And of course, because you don't know what is there and what isn't, you're living in a very strange reality because you don't know what's going on. Sounds scary. So it's very scary. I, I can't even describe how scary. So I was very lucky. I was not home. And my mother, I'm very lucky. My mother was a psychiatric nurse. And I phoned her. And I said, I think I need to come home. And of course, within minutes, she knew right away something was wrong with me. And I had lost my job. And um, my parents wired me some money. And I got onto uh, actually a helicopter from where I was and then an airplane but I lost it on the airplane I completely well how I describe it is the seam between me sort of being in the insanity and being in it and sort of controlling it from the onlookers so it was contained enough that if you were looking at me you wouldn't know I was losing it but on the airplane I call it like the seam broke and then I started saying what was happening in my head and then they realized I was out of it. I was completely gone. I, they had some, I think it was actually a lovely movie about, you know, old yeller dog, a dog movie or something. And I was seeing church steeples with babies being stabbed and stuff like this. So, and I said, do you think this is appropriate for children to watch? And they were like, what is she talking about? And if this person is out there who's hearing this, there was a black man sitting next to me, beautiful. And he just held my hand. And the security came over and they looked at him and he said, no, no, it's okay, I, I got her. And he was a physicist. And I had studied this neuroscience and we started talking about neuroscience. 
And I went to this part of my brain that was just really powerful and strong. And we started talking about, you know, physics and quantum physics and neuropsychology and neuroscience. And so he kept me sort of okay for the trip hmm. until we got home. And I don't know who he is. I don't know who he is. But I told him at the time, I said, you're my guardian angel. So Sounds like you've had three so far in your story. Yeah, at least, at least. You had your more. friend who came to the door. Yeah, my friend. Yeah, she was amazing. And then she this gentleman. Amazing. And you had someone else that you had mentioned. The woman who did the energy. Healing. Yes. I, I think she's passed away since. Um, and, and so, yeah, so on the... This is interesting. So on the plane, unfortunately, I really hallucinated a lot of really horrible things. I hallucinated a fire. I started telling them that there was a fire. And of course, I was oh, scaring wow. all the other passengers. But of course, there was no fire. But I saw a fire. So and I pulled out the booklet. And I said, you're supposed to tell someone when you see this, and I'm seeing this. And they were like, okay, she's really whacked. You know, she's lost it. Sorry, I used all those. No, it's okay. I've been so there. you actually remember that state like, it's something that you oh yeah i remember the state like uh, very vividly i can uh, because yeah, i always yeah. was wondering about that when you're in that state and you don't have the control do you remember exactly how it felt you know so it's just interesting listening to you uh recount it well it's interesting i don't i i'm actually that's a really good question something i'll have to research i think some people remember and some people do mm. don't i mean i've also studied um People have dementia who end up getting delirium. Mm. Uh, dementia is the illness and delirium is an incident, you know, that can be caused by dehydration or s several other things. And some people remember the delirium and some people don't. So it's almost like delirium uh, being psychotic. So you've lost touch with reality. You're seeing things, you're hearing things, you dissociate from yourself. You don't think you're in your body. You're wondering if you are in your body and you're not really clear where you are. But yeah, I think this sounds really weird, but maybe because I'm such a, I'm so interested in research and from the scientific point of view, I was almost kind of like trying to observe what was happening. Mm -hmm. I actually came home and wrote like eight books about everything that had happened is in much detail as I could remember to sort of really get it um so, so that, that you could analyze it. it later right yeah i want to analyze. I get it it's like i don't <laughs> know about this <laughs> yeah <laughs> but anyway uh i was very lucky i my parent i told my mom when i left i said oh no i'm fine i'm fine i'll just take a taxi and i'm really lucky that she didn't listen to that mm. i'm very lucky she didn't listen to that so my mother and my father showed up at the airport and I was being escorted off the plane by security, which I didn't know that was happening at the okay. time. I know now that was happening. But at the time, I thought this gentleman was just saying, you know, come with me, just, you know, come with me. And I was like, okay, you know, like whatever. And then this is really weird. I arrived at Montreal airport, which was under construction at the time. So I didn't recognize it oh. at all. And so I really thought, this is a little bit sad, but I really thought that he was taking me to hell. Hmm. I thought that, you know, my life was over. I had died in the fire on the plane, even though nobody else seemed to know what was wow, going how on. how awful that it must have felt for you. Oh, yeah, it was, it was a terrible feeling. But I was sort of, 
it sounds really weird. I kind of accepted like, oh, okay, so I'm dying and I'm going to hell and this is what's happening. Like I was just like, okay, this is where I'm going and this gentleman is taking me there. And it was weird that the ceiling was out, like there were just beams and metal. So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't attractive. It was definitely uh, kind of like, you know, being in a construction building with no walls and things like that. So it was a very eerie kind of setting. And of course, my mind not being uh, okay, it was just going all over the place. And then when he brought me out to the other side, oh my God, I remember my parents standing there, but they looked translucent. So I thought that they were uh, like angels or ghosts, but sort of like they were alive, but I was dead, but I could still see them. Like it was this really weird thought. Anyway, and then my my father was like, are you okay? And I was kind of like, you can hear me. Mm. <laughs> I was like, you can hear me. I'm dead and you can hear me. And they were like, come on, let's go. And I, and my dad said, where are your bags? And then they were talking and then they weren't translucent. And I said, wow, you mean I'm alive? And then my mother said, yeah, you're alive. It's okay. And I guess they sort of waved off the guy who I later found out had already called an ambulance that was waiting for me. And so I was like, forget the bags. If I'm alive, who cares about my bags? Let's get out of here. Because we're in, like, we're in death here. Like, we're in death. Let's, let's go. And so um, I think what happened, we went back to the car. And then my dad said, well, you need to get your bags. And I was like, okay. And then we came back and got the bags. And then we got into the car. And I remember having a terrible headache. So again, very lucky. So I had a terrible headache. And of course, with anything um that can be psychiatric in presentation in the medical field there is a tendency i won't say anything against the medical field they've helped me in a lot of ways but there's a tendency to automatically put a psychiatric absolutely diagnosis without looking to see if there's other things going on so i was very lucky because my father uh was a neurosurgeon and so i saw a neurologist i had eegs e- e- i had a cat scan i had all sorts of things to make sure i didn't have a tumor just to rule to out sure, yeah to rule out all these other things but i'm going to be honest with you i was really disappointed <laughs> oh. i was like oh my god like i mean what do i do now so i've lost my mind so i'm a crazy person and now what do we do and so this was really sad. Again, I, I begged my, and I'll, I'll, I'll just go for a side for a minute. My brother ended up in the hospital. And I guess as a young child, I was about 15 at the time. I didn't witness very positive events around that. And so I really had this thing, like I, I can't go to the hospital mm. or I know my life will be over. So I was at my parents' place after we came back from the airport and and you know they wanted to take me to the hospital and i said please 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 mm-hmm. i will do anything except please don't take me to the hospital and so this is sounds really weird but they both handed me some medication my mom had an orange pill and my father had a pink pill and my father had more bugs on him than my mother so i took the one my mother was holding and she said, take one of these. I don't, I don't remember what they were. I think they were probably Serox and Rivetrol or something like that. So I took one. And then they said, just take one of these. Doesn't matter which one, because they'll both basically knock you out. And then in the morning, we'll go see a psychiatrist. 
And so this was really strange. And this is a beautiful man. He's passed away since. His name's uh, Dr. Alan Mann, M-A-N-N. And he was a beautiful person, wonderful psychiatrist in Montreal. So I went to see him. My mom drove me there. And I walked in the office. And so I went to McGill University. I don't know if you know, the colors of McGill are red. <clears throat> and so I walked in his office. And there were these red, matted, framed certificates all over the walls, about 10 of them. Okay. And so I walked, and he had even a red McGill flag, <laughs> and I walked in the office, and I went, oh, they brought me to the devil. I've been trying to run away from this guy for the last three months, and now I've come home, and they just brought me to him. So I was like, oh, dear. And I kind of, there was kind of a, a surrendering. And it wasn't a good one, but it was kind of like, okay, this is what's happening. So I'm in the devil's office and this is what's going on. So I guess I'll have a discussion and find out what's happening. So <clears throat> I told him what had happened to me over the past five years, uh, which I won't go into all that, but it was a lot of trauma and a lot of abuse, psychological abuse and sexual abuse within a relationship and manipulation. And he looked at me and he said, I'm going to tell you something. I said, okay. He said, I want to tell you something that what you're experiencing now is actually a very normal response to what has happened to you. And I was like, wow. And I said, so I'm not like my brother. I'm not a schizophrenic. And he said, no, you're not a schizophrenic. You're having a psychotic break, but you're not a schizophrenic. This is something that's happened because of all this trauma. And your brain is, you know, it's gone from, I mean, there's this crisis intervention scale from zero to 10. It's at 10 or 11. It's, you know, it, it's like a gasket is blown in a car. It's like, <sighs> yeah. So... So anyway, he put me on medication, which I'm, you know, I have no qualms about medication. I took medication that basically knocked me out. He said, you're going to take this three times a day and you're going to sleep and you're going to eat. And that's it. And so I thank my parents every day of my life because they were there for me. And I'm serious. Literally, my mother fed me in bed for about... I don't know, like a week or so. And then I slowly started to be able to eat myself and, and you know, but I, I mean, I was pretty sedated, but I needed to be. And my brain was firing, you know, all systems were on. <laughs> and so, um, and I'm sure there's other ways of handling this. I'm not saying this is the only way of handling it, but that's what happened to me. And I'm grateful that for me, it worked out. And, but for about a year, I kept saying, you know, if this doesn't change, because I still had, you know, bouts of hallucination. I still had bouts of extreme fear, extreme fear. So I lived a very tiny, tiny life. Uh, and then about <clears throat> six months later, I started visiting the university. And then I met one of my teachers and she said, you used to tutor statistics, didn't you? And I said, well, yeah, but I don't remember any of that. And she said, well, come and sit in my class, take notes, and see if you want to teach it again. And uh, she's a lovely person. She was 
teacher at McGill uh, who's won teaching awards. Uh, she's fantastic. And I don't think she knew how sick I was, but I, I don't think I looked, I, I, I think I, I, I looked okay, but I think people knew I wasn't okay. I think I thought I thought I thought I looked okay, but I didn't realize that other people said, "Oh, I saw you ten years ago. You weren't that well." And I went, "Oh, it showed, eh? Oh, <laughs> oh well." So, but what happened was I gradually started working with her, and of course, using the part of my brain that's my favorite part of my brain, my my sort of high high intellect in neuroscience and statistics. And I taught statistics for thirteen years. And I taught people who were dyslexic, who were blind, who were disabled in all sorts of different ways, learning disabilities, ADHD, all sorts of disabilities. And, you know, I'd be able to tell them, look, I've had my own challenges. I've had dyslexia. I've had a mental breakdown. And here I am, you know, I graduated from university. And they, you did? You graduated? And I'm like, yeah, I graduated. You can too. So... And then, so I'll sort of fast forward. So my life, my life was okay. But what happened was, and I didn't know this, I went to visit a friend a few years later out West and I got on an airplane and I had been fine. I hadn't been on medication for a couple of years. I was doing a lot of sports. I had a job. I had friends. I had a nice apartment. Everything was okay. It wasn't fantastic, but it was okay. And I went on a plane to go visit a friend. And I got on this airplane, and this is really unusual. I don't know what the odds are. I hadn't calculated the odds in probability. But I got on an airplane to go visit a friend in Vancouver where all this happened. And I got on the same airplane that I had been on. The same airplane, the same staff, the same slight scratch on the wall where I was sitting. So not just the same model, like the actual. No, no the actual aircraft. Oh, my. and the actual staff. How the actual staff. What are the odds? I don't know what the odds That's are. That's the universe again. I was on the same plane. And this was about three years after this had happened to me. Wow. And I started to lose it. And I'd been fine for a while. And I thought, Oh, my God, I'm losing it. And I was on this five hour flight, just like white knuckling it going, Oh my God, what do I do now? Anyway, so I landed in Vancouver and I phoned my mom right away. Hmm. And I said, what's happening to me? I'm losing it again. And she said, this is funny. I don't recommend this to people, but she, <laughs> she said, she said, go to the, go to the pharmacy and buy some gravel yes. and take 50 milligrams of gravel. And I was like, what? And she said, just, just do that. It'll make you drowsy and it'll, it'll, you know, calm things down. And she was right. And that's all I did. I just took one and I took it and then I was okay. And I remember the guy that I was, you know, sort of coming to date. Um, we had a big fight because I was on a particular airline. I won't say what airline, because there's nothing wrong with the airline, but I was on <laughs> one airline to fly there. And I went and paid fifteen hundred dollars to change the airline to make sure that there was absolutely no way oh. that i would end up on the same airplane going back and he thought i was crazy well i am crazy but anyway i was like no 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 no. this is this is cheap for me 
to pay to not lose my mind again. Yes. Like, like I'll pay, I, I pay even more than that. So I went and, and I paid $1,500 and I changed the airline and I got on a different plane with different staff and I was fine and I made it home. But then after that, I was kind of like, I'm not going anywhere. Like I was so terrified from the original event and then to have it re-triggered, I just said, I'm not going anywhere. Now what happened was, and, and the, the technical term or the medical term is agoraphobia is, is when someone stays in their house. So mine wasn't as confined as that, but what happened was I could not leave Montreal Island. Hmm. So I live on an island, Montreal, it's, it's a big island. Well, I'll tell you. So what happened was if I tried to leave the island, I would start to get psychotic and I'd have to come back and then take medication. I couldn't take the medication and then drive. So, and I was alone. I had nobody to help me with this. And I was trying to push the envelope and trying to go forward and trying to get over this. But I really, I wasn't that close with anybody. I was kind of living in this little box in my little world. You know, I'd go to work, go to the gym, go home. And my parents even had a country house an hour and a half away. For 10 years, I couldn't go. For 10 years. I couldn't go on the bridge. As soon as I got on the other side of the bridge, I'd start flipping out. I'd have to turn around and come back. And so I went to my doctor and I said, okay, if this, is, if, if this is left over from the illness, if this is the only sequela left over from this illness, I'll take it. Because if I'm going to be fine, if I just do my job and go to the gym and see my friends and, you know, go on a terrace and have a beer, if that's my life, I'll take it. And I won't ever go anywhere again. And my life stayed like that for 10 years. And I just accepted I live on this island and I can't get off this island and that's it. So I met someone uh, later who I ended up marrying, who was a beautiful person who I call my travel whisperer. And what we did is because I had someone to sort of work with me and I didn't really want to be telling everybody about this. I'd come from a well-known family. So it's like, hi, I'm the crazy person. <laughs> And, um, you know, my family are, you know, they're all very well, uh, high achievers and, you know, excellent professionals. So I was very ashamed of what had happened to me and very embarrassed. So I wasn't really wanting to, I call it a coming out. I've had a few coming outs in my life, dyslexia or whatever, but this was a big coming out. And um, I really didn't want to do it. I just didn't want to tell people. But I met this man, I had been dating here and there, and that was really scary for me to even start thinking about a relationship. I'd been alone for 10 years after this very not healthy relationship. But I met this very beautiful man, and my friend said, Anna, don't say anything about, you know, your mental health and what happened to you, and don't say you've been raped, and don't say this, and don't say that, and don't say this. And I was like, Okay, Be so then what else? am I going to say to him? Because <laughs> that's kind of who I am and how my life is. Anyway, so it was interesting. So I met with him and I said, 
you know what, here are the cards on the table. This is who I am. This is, you know, and guess what? The first date he asked me to go on yes. was an hour and a half outside of Montreal off the island. Oh. And I was on the phone. I was like really cool, calm and collected. And I said, oh, you know what? That sounds lovely. And I said, you know, maybe for another time, I think for our first date, I'd like to be a little bit closer to home. And then, of course, his friend said, what are you doing? You can't take a girl on a first date an hour and a half from her home. What's she going to do if the date doesn't work out? She's supposed to take a you know, $200 taxi to get home. So uh, it was kind of funny. So we ended up going for brunch at this place nearby, which, of course, I could have walked home if it didn't work out, you know. But, you know, when you're dating someone in these days, you have to make sure, you, you know, you can you, get You home have an out. Yes. You have an out. I wasn't going to go an hour and a half away, especially if I started becoming psychotic. It wouldn't have worked very well. So anyway, so we did go for brunch and we went for a walk. And we went and sat on this bench in this park. And I told him everything. I just said, you know what? I've been wasting time dating a bunch of people and I date them for a few months. And then I tell them, you know, I have a mental illness and I take medication sometimes. Sometimes I need to go to the psych emergency at the hospital if this and this and this happens. And they're like, no, thank you. And they walked out. So I'm like, I'm not going to go and invest all this time and then tell this person I have mental illness and then they walk away. Yeah. If you're not going to stay, I want to know right away, you know? Yeah. So I was like, here are the cards on the table. So we sat there for four hours. <laughs> poor guy. <laughs> and I said, listen, this is me. This is what's happened. This is who I am. This is what I deal with. I can't get off the island. I can't do this. I can't do that. I can't do this. Anyway. And I said, if you want to call me, call me. And he called me and we got married. And yeah, so, and we had the most beautiful wedding. It was an awesome wedding. So anyway, and so what was the first step was he said, now we can go to the country house. <laughs> and if you start losing it, you can take the medication and we can stay there. And if you want to leave, I'll drive you. But if you, do, you know, if you want to make it through the night. So we tried a couple of times, but I was like, no, 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 no. Take me home. Take me home. And so we'd, we'd come back. And then finally, one time we went there and I took the medication and he held me in bed the whole night long. And he read these childhood stories. We had all these children's books in the upper room in the, in the country house. And he read this story to me and he just held me all night. And I finally fell asleep and I have a picture. I don't know where it is right now, but I have a picture of the next morning. I mean, I look like I've been through hell, but I'm so happy that I actually made, after 10 years, I stayed somewhere for one night and I started and I was painting because he got me back into painting and stuff. And so that's another thing I do is the expression. So I was painting and I have this lovely picture of me sitting there just triumphant, just like, you know what, you can do it. And of course, you can do it if you have someone helping you, but I didn't have anybody helping me. So that can sort of be part one. <laughs> what a remarkable human being, just to accept and just know what you needed, you know? Yeah. Hear what that was. Yeah. yeah. That's yeah. beautiful. That concludes part one of my interview with Anna. Be sure to check in Thursday for the conclusion of what happens next. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode. If you enjoyed what you heard, 
please subscribe or leave a review. See you next week on the Giving Starts With You podcast.